Hi, listeners. Thanks for tuning in to Our Right Stories, a podcast created and developed by the Just Right Scotland team with your host, Natalia. Today's episode is our part one of the intro into our 16 Days of Activism campaign against gender-based violence, which is a part of an annual international campaign that kicks off on November 25th, the International Day for Elimination of Violence Against Women, and runs up until Human Rights Day on December 10th. This year's call to action is to call on governments worldwide to invest in prevention to eradicate violence against women and girls. Our special guests, Lindsay and Jen, will talk about economic abuse and the work they both do at or with the Scottish Women's Rights Center that provides help and support to women survivors of gender-based violence. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Our Right Stories. Today we have special guest, Lindsay. Hi. And Jen. Hi there. Hi. Um, And thank you for joining us on our Scottish Women's Rights Center themed uh, episode. So, Lindsay, can you tell us a little bit more about your role in the SWRC or the Scottish Women's Rights Center? Yeah, um, so I'm the Senior Associate Solicitor for the Scottish Women's Rights Centre. I'm the lead solicitor, so I manage the legal team um, within the Scottish Women's Rights Centre and provide advice, representation and information to women who experience gender-based violence in Scotland. Um, So that's any form of abuse, um, sexual abuse, domestic abuse, coercive control um, and we provide, on a kind of day-to-day, I would provide um, advice and representation to my clients. I would, um, and I would also staff our legal outreach, so helplines and surgeries. Um, and I will also contribute to policy work, training, and our legal education, which is guides and blogs that we publish on our website. Yeah, that's such a wide range of services that you provide, and it all sounds amazing. Um, Jen, can you give us a little bit description about your job title and, and yeah, an introduction? Yeah, thank you for having me. That's a really hard act to follow. I think it's going to be much shorter than that. So um, I am a independent consultant and researcher, and I am also completing my PhD at the University of Glasgow. And my expertise lies in economic abuse. And last year, off the back of the research that I've done and, and the findings, um, I saw that there was a real need to have someone who's focusing specifically on economic abuse in Scotland. So I started my own consultancy, uh, Jen Glinsky Consulting, not the most creative title in the world, but it gets the job done at the moment. And through the consultancy, what I do is provide training, research and strategy uh, for third sector bodies as well as public sector bodies um, and private sector as well around economic abuse. And that could be anything from delivering training to get people to understand what economic abuse is and how it takes place and the impact of it. Um, It could also be doing research for organizations or for particular institutions on what economic abuse looks like within their organizations or um, how they're responding to it, if they have a a client base, for example. And um, like I said, also then um, providing strategy on how you you can actually address this and respond to it effectively. Wow. I mean, I have so many questions and I'm not going to pose them now because we're going to talk about it later. That's what we're here for. So yeah, yeah, go for it. Absolutely. And I mean, that sounds like such a 
a great gap to fill as well mm-hmm. in Scotland. And it sounds like such important work that you're doing. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about how your work kind of plays into collaboration with the Scottish Women's Rights Center? Yeah, absolutely. So I approached SWRC a few years ago um, off of the back of my research findings, which my research dealt primarily with looking at economic abuse in Scotland, specifically looking at women who have experienced economic abuse and the support that they seek around it if they're identifying it, and then also how support workers, anyone who would come in contact with a victim survivor, would identify and respond to economic abuse. And the findings very much highlighted that at the moment, it's really not something that anyone's identifying or looking for. And when they do, there's a very difficult way in terms of responding. Um, there's very few responses. So I've you know been following the work of the SWRC since it started. Uh, I was at the launch event when when it first came into, into being. And um, I just thought it was a great place to bring this topic up, especially because some some of the staff within SWRC helped inform some of the research as well. Um, and it was very apparent that, you know, they knew economic abuse was happening. And um, just to see what can we actually do. And the first step for that was a collaborative piece of work where we looked at producing um, an information sheet around economic abuse um, to highlight, you know, what the definition of it is, how it manifests, what the consequences are, and uh, how to respond to it. But more specifically, given the remit of the SWRC, you know, what women who are seeking support from the organization, what they can actually do and next steps and who they can look to for support. Yeah. So, I mean, the term economic abuse used quite a bit. Um, can you give like a brief definition of what that looks like? Yeah. Yeah. So economic abuse, it, it's interesting because we've known about it for such a long time. It, it first came about in the 1980s. Um, I say that a long time when I'm an 80s baby. So there we go. Um, and, and women were saying, you know, yes, there are all these other forms of domestic abuse, the physical violence that we know about, the sexual violence. However, there's also economic abuse. And it's not until sort of the early 2000s, 2008, where we're actually seeing an academic definition that's that's brought, been brought about. And that academic definition very much says that, you know, economic abuse is the restriction, the exploitation, or the sabotage of your economic resources. And uh, I'll just go there because I know you're going to ask me, well, what's the difference between financial and, and economic abuse? And people use them interchangeably. And when I look to that, you know, that academic definition, the economic resources, that's kind of your hint. So financial abuse, people love using it. I think it's easier to, to just throw out there. I know financial institutions use it, but that just pertains to money. So that just pertains to your finances. However, with economic abuse, what we're trying to highlight is the fact that it's It's all of your economic resources. It's your partner or your former partner who controls them, restricts them, can exploit them. So things like your housing, a really, really big, huge economic resource, Um, your transport, anything that you need to survive and to thrive that can be exploited and, and used, that's economic abuse. And financial abuse is just one form of economic abuse. Wow. I mean, like when I think about abuse and like the different forms of abuse, I never knew that there was terms that Mm -hmm. kind of like laid this out a little bit more. And I'm kind of curious, um, does having an actual definition of what this means make it a little bit better for accountability or to be able to kind of raise this in, in a legal sense? Absolutely. And and that's why, you know, the second collaboration with SWRC was so important, because at the moment, we do not have a definition for economic abuse in Scotland. So even though it is, you know, de facto included in the Domestic Abuse Act, uh, the Scotland Act, 
is included in it, but at no point does it ever appear in policy or in guidance or, or anywhere else. Even with the Police Scotland and the um, the fiscal's joint joint statement or their joint um, protocol, it, you know, it mentions the different forms of domestic abuse, including financial abuse. But at no point in that guidance is there a definition. Mm-hmm. At no point is there anything outlining what forms this could take and what to be looking for. But more importantly, in terms of the law, how to evidence it, how to show, you know, bring evidence or perhaps collect evidence if it's safe for you to do so to then try to redress and try to counterbalance what has happened so with this definition missing at the moment that's why i've been quite passionate about delivering training and trying to get it more into public awareness because it's happening and practitioners and support workers know it's happening victim survivors know it's happening but at the moment we don't have the language to describe specifically what it is Mm. and at the moment where it falls is just sort of you know, the financial aspect of not having enough money or experiencing continued economic hardship after leaving an abusive partner is just seen as par for the course. And that's where my work is coming in. And that's where the collaboration with SWRC is so important because it's showing actually this isn't just a consequence of experiencing domestic abuse. It's a specific form of abuse that is perpetrated in order to get this exact outcome. Wow. Yeah, so it sounds like there's a lot of work to be done in Scotland, at least to get this recognized in a legal sense. And I mean, I, I like that you said that it's already kind of under the general kind of guidance for like abuse, right? Mm-hmm. And I kind of want to bring you in on this, Lindsay, as well. I know that SWRC provides free legal information, advice and representation and advocacy support to women in Scotland affected by violence and abuse, including domestic abuse. Um, we've heard what economic abuse is. Can you kind of make a a clear difference about what domestic abuse is and and potentially give some examples of this as well. Yeah, of course. So economic abuse is a form of domestic abuse um, and domestic abuse more widely is a pattern of behaviour, a pattern of controlling behaviour, coercive behaviour, it's physical violence, it can be sexual violence um, and it can be threatening behaviour, degrading. So it's a it's a wide ranging kind of term that encompasses a lot of behaviours that women experience from their abusive partners and certainly economic abuse comes under that. Um, typically, um, domestic abuse has been seen as physical abuse or sexual abuse and it's quite a narrow um, kind of definition Um, but um, we know and and, and we hear from women the wide-ranging effects that they're experiencing um, when they're experiencing domestic abuse and the Domestic Abuse Scotland Act which was introduced in 2019 um, and came into law in 2019 that um, really encompassed what domestic abuse is in terms of it not just being physical abuse or sexual abuse. Of course it is it is and can be physical or sexual abuse, um, but recognised really that um, uh, 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 the majority of women are also experiencing or on their own experiencing coercive controlling behaviour. Um, and um, prior to the Domestic Abuse Scotland Act, in Scotland there was no... Um, 
there was no offence or criminal offence of coercive controlling behaviour. Um, you they had standalone offences of physical abuse, so physical assaults. Um, there was other um, criminal offences, for example, harassment or breach of the peace or um, offences under the Communications Act, which would you know encompass if somebody was sending threatening text messages and things like that. But it was very bitty. There was lots of different pieces of legislation, but nothing that really encompassed or covered um, psychological abuse or coercive controlling behaviour. Um, so the twenty, the Domestic Abuse Scotland Act twenty eighteen really um, brought that into the forefront that domestic abuse is wider um, than just physical abuse or um, sexual abuse. Um, and I suppose in terms of real examples of that, um, the domestic abuse and coercive controlling behaviour, um, you would be thinking about, for example, the isolation of somebody. So somebody being isolated um, from their friends or their family, not being allowed to socialise or restricting that socialising, restricting their access to their phone or how who they're allowed to contact. It can also be stopping them from working um, or stopping or or directing where they work or who they work with um, and um, thinking about economic abuse it's for example stopping not not providing somebody with money um, not providing them with resources food um, or to buy new clothes when they need it um, it can be kind of wide-ranging in that way um, and it also includes you know general threatening or controlling behaviors um, or degrading somebody humiliating somebody um, putting them down continually um, so it really depends on the individual's experience um, and domestic abuse for each individual will probably look quite different um, but the theme of what they're experiencing and, 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 and really at the heart of what they're experiencing is, um, is, is domestic abuse um, and is that experience of, of domestic abuse. I think those are all really important things that you highlight and I think as well saying that domestic abuse in my head is like an umbrella right and that underneath it is so many different ways that you can experience it but also at the same time experience these things um and i think it's really important that people understand that you know economic abuse is a form of domestic abuse and and kind of understand these terms so they can better evaluate like oh this is not a normal situation i'm in or or oh maybe this is more controlling than what it needs to be or, or so it's like like you're saying educating and recognizing and you both did mention that you're working on a worksheet and more information and, and um and resources for people to access could either of you which whichever one of you wants to come in on this question give us a little bit more details on that work yeah i'm happy to take it if you want to come in feel feel free at any point in time but <laughs> essentially what was happening and then you know going back to this importance of of naming it and recognizing it um, what was happening was I had multiple women come and approach me um, in a private capacity saying, you know, I know this is what's going on. I know this is what's happening to my money. I know this is what's happening to my business. This is my my partner or my ex-partner who's doing this. And um, I've gone to the police and I've tried reporting it as a form of domestic abuse. It was my understanding that, you know, under our new Domestic Abuse Act, this would be included. 
And the problem being that the responses were inconsistent or that they did not identify it as a form of abuse. So responses were more, you know, that's a private matter. Um, it's, a, it's a criminal matter. And oftentimes, because as we've said, you know, financial abuse is a large form of economic abuse, a large part of it. Um, have you spoken to your bank? You know, you, if you're looking for remedies or redress, um, you know, this isn't really something that the police would deal with. So that's something you need to go and speak to your bank about. You know, they're looking to the police and the police are looking to the courts. And it's just kind of this rigmarole of, well, who's actually responsible for this and and where does it sit? But basically what women were saying were, I have started to identify this. I know this is what this is. It's the consequences are devastating. Um, you know, serious, serious financial and economic hardship. Um, not being able to, you know, access safe and affordable housing. Not being able to feed your children. If you are working and perhaps don't qualify for benefits, you know, having to pay off this the debt that usually accumulates as a result of economic abuse, it can have lifelong consequences for women. And they're starting to identify it, but looking for an outlet, looking for the person or the body or the institution, whoever, who is responsible for actually doing something about it. So we're at that point now where thankfully the word is getting out a little bit more of this is a form of abuse. It is a pattern of power and control. And they're absolutely right. Under the new legislation, it is covered. It is included in it. But who's responsible for it? So that's again where I, I turn to Lindsay and just saying, you know, is there something here? I can't see any guidance on, you know, how does economic abuse fit? within our new legislation here in Scotland. Is the legislation, is it covered in it? You know, what are the responsibilities under it? And again, going back to that that thing, I, I don't like talking about it, but that evidencing of it, because obviously if you were to take a criminal case, we would be looking for evidence, right? So where's this information now that women are, or victim survivors are starting to identify this, but seemingly can't turn anywhere to get more information about how it fits within our legislation? And I think then what we do is, we, from our discussion, my discussion with Jen, we look at the the law and what the law says. So the Domestic Abuse Scotland Act and what that's saying, and and what it says is that there has to be, and they call it relevant effects. So there has to be a specific effect that's had on the 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 person who's experiencing the abuse, and if and 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 whether and we then look at whether or not those specific effects would fall under, I suppose, economic abuse. Um, and if we think about the wording of it, which is um, isolating someone, making them feel humiliated or degraded, um, controlling, and all of these words very much link with what we know and what we hear from survivors about what they feel and how they're experiencing economic abuse. And it's quite evident, I think, in fact, that the Domestic Abuse Scotland Act um, should um, encompass economic abuse. Um, so what we kind of wanted to do in terms of this resource was to raise awareness for survivors so that survivors can recognise perhaps if they're experiencing economic abuse and then to hopefully make some recommendations um, in terms of how um, anybody that's dealing with somebody who's experiencing economic abuse, so that could be support workers or it could be the police or the Crown Office in terms of how that should be um, relayed to whoever needs to know um, in terms of taking action um, and also to try and show how you can evidence the economic abuse because we know 
and we hear and and we know from the the statistics sorry in terms of how how domestic abuse and economic abuse um are reported and prosecuted that domestic abuse is it's a difficult thing to evidence generally it happens mostly behind closed doors um quite often as i've been saying people are isolated from their friends and their family so they don't perhaps have people that have seen or hear what's going on so it can be really difficult to evidence and economic abuse is a very specific form of abuse and um, again can be really difficult to evidence so we had a good think about how that how you could do that and the different ways that that you know we've, we've thought about are um, keeping a record of your um, bank statements trying to see if there's anything in your um, financial records that evidences it but also um, friends and family if they have um, been witnesses for example to the aftermath or you have disclosed to them or they have perhaps seen anything um, and also um, any other evidence um, it's about thinking out of the box I would say. So what we find quite often when we're hearing of women's experiences of dealing with the police um, is that um, the, it's it's a difficult thing to evidence. Um, and so, and with resources of Police Scotland and issues around that, um, obviously there isn't um, a lot of resources in terms of investigating into people's personal records and their financial records and things like that. So we, um, so it's about women for example, if they're able to and it's safe to do it, to um, try and get their, their personal records to show um, and also um, just whether or not um, there, there are any text messages, voicemails, social media, things like that. So there's a wide ranging uh, kind of array of, of evidence that potentially could be available. Um, but it's about people knowing what evidence they need to keep they need to record um, and about knowing what they need to give to the police or give to their support workers or whoever it is that they're trying to get support from um, and, and about um, about really about, I would say, thinking out the box and, and taking proactive action in terms of, of thinking about how can we evidence this economic abuse. I mean, it's quite obvious in most situations that it's happening, but it's about how to evidence that. But we're also aware that economic abuse can play out in different ways. So it can play out, for example, through the civil justice system. Um, so through um, court actions, quite often through divorce actions, um, where a perpetrator will um, continue abuse through that process. Um, at the end of a relationship, it's quite often the escalation point in terms of domestic abuse. Um, and it's the, the only way that a perpetrator has to continue to control somebody is, for example, through their child contact with their child or through delaying and prolonging divorce proceedings, which are very expensive. At the moment in Scotland, there's a real legal aid crisis. There's an issue with access in legal aid um, and so women are quite often having to either self-represent or find a way to pay for their own legal representation and a divorce action if it can't be settled at an early stage is extremely expensive um, and perpetrators use that to continue the abuse so they use um, that court process um, refusing to um, negotiate refusing to settle to continue that and it can it can be through legal fees but it could also be through delaying the um, the settlement of the court action which then causes your house to fall into arrears um, it, cause, it's, it leads to repossession for example and fears of that or concerns about who's paying the mortgage who's paying the council tax all of these kinds of questions um, which are, 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 are 
are significantly concerning, you know, and and, and cause um, women um, significant fear and anxiety for their future and the future of their children in in lots of situations. Um, And that is a really difficult one, you know, to try and evidence. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just coming in on the, the, you know, it being continued through, you know, the civil system, the, the thing with that is as well that, in that system, you know, by refusing to, um, you know, put forward documents that the court has asked for, by, you know, drawing out court cases indefinitely, perpetrators or, let's say, abusive ex-partners are actually not doing anything illegal. They're not doing anything criminal. You're allowed to do that. You're allowed to stall a court case. So there you can see as well that it is a whole systems problem and it's getting to actually not just because we can do all the awareness raising we want and then have victim survivors identify it but if we can't also get the systems to recognize it acknowledge it for what it is look at the different ways that it occurs and even how they're complicit in it oftentimes we're not going to see any big changes come about that's the thing that always gets me about things like child contact cases or other disputes, any settlements or anything, is that they're not doing anything illegal. What they're doing is not criminal. And how do you stop that? How do you stop? And how can we get judges to actually look at this and say, you know, this is the mother of your child. Why are you looking to make her homeless? Why are you not submitting the documents I have asked for repeatedly? You know, what is the game plan here? Like, what are you actually doing? And looking at the effect that this does have on, let's say, the mother or the woman who's on the other side of that table in the courtroom. So they're really quite powerful examples, and they're things that, and, and that's the big thing to, to, to come away from my research as well, how institutions are complicit in continuing this. And it kind of, it all goes back to, I mean, women's inequality in society in general, and specifically women's economic inequality. And that is one thing that's at the heart of all of this. There are the stats on lone mothers and on lone parents that are predominantly they're predominantly women overwhelmingly women in fact and we know that the children overwhelmingly are living in poverty in scotland right now but no one goes wow we're let's connect the dots let's see what's going on here so court cases and and yeah the the way that it is perpetrated is a really serious issue and it's something that does again when we think about you know, coercive and controlling behavior, that fear, even the fear of having to go to court indefinitely, you know, it affects your job. You get court notices at a moment's notice. So that's you having to tell your employer again that you can't come into work that day. You don't know if it's going to settle this week, next month, or in three years time. Keeping that up, the emotional exhaustion, and and, and like Lindsay said, like sometimes you have to represent yourself. I couldn't do that. You know, people go to university, people get qualified to do that, to expect someone to have to do that or pay out of pocket. When what we're seeing on the other side is that abusive partners manage to really take advantage and exploit the systems. But I'm kind of curious, you talk a lot about your research, and I know that you have the post-separation economic abuse wheel. It's a mouthful, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, but... Sorry. <laughs> no. <laughs> But I mean, as well, like if you could explain what it is and and kind of give us a little bit more information and examples would be great. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the biggest findings to come out of uh, the research that I did for my PhD was post-separation abuse. So 29 out of the 30 women that I interviewed had experienced economic abuse during their relationships and at the point they tried to separate, but then 30 out of 30 had experienced post-separation economic abuse. And it was really, it, it struck me that 
all of them tried to then bring the conversation in the interviews back to this post-separation abuse. And we have this idea still in society. I don't know when we're ever going to get rid of it, but that when you leave, the abuse ends. So if the relationship ends, the abuse ends. And it's simply not true. The abuse ends when the perpetrator wants the abuse to end. So all of the participants in my research were saying, actually, I did experience economic abuse post-separation, um, or in fact, I'm still currently experiencing economic abuse post-separation. Um, and the examples that they were given were given all around. Again, if, if you're familiar with the Duluth power and control wheel, it's this wheel and it has eight spokes in it. It's a visual representation of the different forms of domestic abuse. So the emotional abuse, the psychological abuse, economic abuse actually features in it. So again, this resource was developed in, I think, the mid 80s. Um, so economic abuse was already there. Um, also, how you can you know continue to abuse someone through children and you know keeping that going for things like child contact, like we've already mentioned. So what I then did was go to Duluth to ask permission to adapt the wheel and say, I think I've really got something here where all of these women are saying this continues after I have separated and no one's looking for it. So it was really interesting because I felt like during during the relationships, they didn't perhaps identify the abuse, the economic abuse. And it goes back to all these stereotypes and stigmas we have around money, right? They didn't identify it as readily, but after the separation, that's where they went. Actually, the only thing he's doing is controlling me through money still and economic resources. Um, and I thought that that was quite powerful. So I adapted the wheel um, with Deleuze permission in order to kind of adjust the, the inner, the spokes, the different sections of the wheel to demonstrate how perpetrators, so abusive partners, were able to continue economic abuse post-separation. And the only bits that I changed in the wheel are, are the bottom three spokes where I looked at how financial institutions do this. I also looked at how um, the perpetrators are able to manipulate institutions, and then also through court processes and legal processes. Those are the changes to the original wheel. Everything else has stayed the same, such as through harassments and threats, other forms of economic abuse, the use of children, intimidation, uh, and shaming and degrading treatment. So what women were saying was actually, and, and it checks out with, with all the literature that, that we have um, at the moment that just shows actually post-separation economic abuse, it continues, it can start, or it can escalate post-separation. And it all comes down to the fact that you do not require that physical proximity to perpetrate it. So for example, Lindsay's already covered the, the court thing. So keeping, you know, just vexatious litigation, keeping you in court indefinitely, really depleting whatever resources you might have left in order to, to bring court action against you. Using children, oftentimes perpetrators, abusive ex-partners refuse to pay child maintenance. They'll either pay child maintenance late, pay very little of it, not pay it at all. Sometimes it comes, sometimes it doesn't. Again, if you're trying to think about how you manage financially when you're expecting that payment and then it doesn't come you know there might go the school you, you know the uniforms for that year there might go essentials that you were hoping for because you're relying on that money along with that um, something that happens quite often is abusive messaging when child maintenance when the amounts are sent so a really interesting way to, to again have this power and control and that's why i said financial institutions have some responsibility as well is making payments making them over you know your mobile phone through your banking app and then including abusive messaging i've seen 
people send across one P at a time with a letter each time to then spell out an abusive message. So again, there's your evidence. Banks hold that, right? You can say, look, they're supposed to pay me whatever the amount is this month. That was court agreed. This is what I'm getting instead. Um, but again, one thing, and you know, we need to bring this up over and over again, it is fundamentally related to safety, how you respond to that. Some victim survivors choose not to pursue for child maintenance. Some do. Some will go to the police. Some will report it. Um, and others just feel, you know what? I'm not getting it. I am struggling massively. Uh, the children are not getting what they deserve. However, the person's out of our life. We're just going to keep that as it is. Other examples were doing, you know, um, damages to property. So that could be to your housing so that then you're responsible for making these payments, intimidating and threatening you outside of your housing, uh, slashing your tires on your car. So that means you can't get into work. You can't drop the, the kids off at school if, if you have children. Examples such as that. But the really powerful ones were really around, you know, how perpetrators manage to manipulate institutions um, and systems and processes. So, for example, making yourself purposely unemployed so that you do not owe child maintenance or get the, the amount of child maintenance reduced in order to see, you know, what the effect then is on, on the family who's not receiving it. Um, other things are actually fraudulent. But what the wheel does is um, to capture them, I think, in a very succinct way. Of course, it won't be representative of every single person's experience. I think, as we've we've made clear, this this form of abuse and any form of abuse really is tailored to the person, but it can happen to anyone. And what I tried to do with the wheel is just make sure that it included as many examples as possible. But of course, it's a you know it's a one page resource. You can only include so many. So hopefully, it does resonate with with victim survivors and. I don't know, hopefully more adjustments can be made in the, the future to include other forms as we go and people have this awareness of what it is and how it's taking place. Yeah, I think putting it in like a visual like that mm. is really accessible as well because you're able to kind of make the docs and, and yeah. fully realize that it is a wheel. Like yeah, all yeah. Encompass each other. Yeah. No, so I think that's ex like just amazing and super helpful to even, even if it's one pager. I think having that condensed and like really simple kind of language around it absolutely it's yeah so important. and i've had women approach me and say you know I'm, I'm currently involved in uh you know a legal dispute and uh, i took your wheel in and i highlighted each section that applied to me and i showed it to my solicitor and i said this is what's happening and where are you on this where where are you in stopping this <laughs> you know that it doesn't escalate any further and what is the end game like is it for me to be homeless is it for me and my children to be on the street because you know, here are all the forms. So I think it can be a quite powerful tool in, in that way to have that visual and, you know, not have to bring in a 15 page document or something. It's not very useful. <laughs> and as a practitioner, um, I mean, I've certainly used it and, and showed it to um, clients or service users to try and evidence, you know, demonstrate exactly what they could be experiencing because mm -hmm. we know that quite often um, women who are experiencing domestic abuse might not fully understand exactly what it is in terms of the law that they're experiencing or might not recognize it as abuse because it has been normalized in terms of the behaviors that you're experiencing and so using that wheel has 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 been really useful to actually show in an illustration exactly what they might be experiencing and and, and like jen said it helps them to go oh, oh that that's actually what what i'm 
experiencing and yeah that is that is what I what I experience um, and I think that's also very helpful for um, support groups and support workers and things like that when they're trying to show that um, and I think that um, these types of things and awareness of these resources so awareness of these um, of, of, of the wheels and also awareness of like our resources so our guides and our, our fact sheets and things like that is so important to evidence to women exactly what it is that it, you know what they're experiencing and how that can then relay back into the law and, and how they can get help from that but also I think for institutions so Absolutely. for banks so mm-hmm. for courts for the, the sheriffs and the judges and, and for the police and the mm-hmm. crown office and I think that all really comes down to the, the, the training and, and the resourcing of those services and making sure they've got access to these really important I mean Jen's wheel is you know it's it's invaluable in terms of economic abuse and it's showing that and, and and really setting it out in a really clear and 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 understandable way we produce guides and fact sheets but it can be quite difficult to read a big resource and and see that and 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 for a woman who's currently quite often experiencing trauma you know she's in she's in a traumatic experience even when the relationship has ended that trauma continues and also the abuse as we've as as, as we've highlighted continues and so reading a a, a a big guide might be difficult right at that moment and so having an illustration is so useful to have that and i think it is a bit of awareness of those mm. Yeah, and I think it's such an important point as well that you said having these, having this illustration to provide to the institution so you can start to break down those barriers and those systematic issues that are there because now you're also training and educating them mm-hmm. about what this looks like, what this includes, how each of these um, kind of things play into each other. So I think that's like, yeah, instrumental to be fair. Um, but Jen, back a little bit, backing up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I know in your research, you utilize a lot of qualitative research methods, and you've kind of shared quite a bit of examples already, but I don't know if you want to share any additional key findings that came from your research. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the post-separation stuff is uh, is the biggie, I would say. It's something that, as I said, we've not really been researching economic abuse. We've not been looking into it. So even though, you know, there's been a lot, a lot of work produced on domestic abuse, domestic violence, violence against women, economic abuse just hasn't really featured. So the post-separation findings really kind of plug a gap in research with, if you speak to any researcher or doctoral student, they'll tell you, you know, that's what we live for is trying to <laughs> find a, a gap in the literature and close it. So um, so that's probably the biggest accomplishment coming out of it. The other ones, and I, I've kind of touched on it already, were really around this identification of economic abuse and both by the women that I interviewed as well as the support workers that I interviewed. So so you can see that even walking out your do- your front door would, would take money. And if you do not have that, even if you're employed, but your partner is restricting your access to your own income, taking it away from you, uh, withholding you know your house keys or your method of transportation alongside other threats and, and coercive and controlling behavior, you can see how powerful that is. Um, I saw, unfortunately, I don't know the, the source of who said it first, but it's been going and making the round on social media where uh, a survivor has allegedly said that, you know, physical, sexual and emotional abuse are the cage, but that financial abuse is the padlock. 
And I think that's a really, really powerful metaphor for for what we're looking at, because it doesn't happen in isolation. The way Lindsay explained this comes with other forms of domestic abuse. But what are they actually doing? Because there is no financial support there. Yeah. Every year, the SWRC takes part in the hashtag 16 days campaign to end violence against women. Some of these key themes include financial abuse and technological facilitated violence against women and girls. Um, you both already kind of explained a little bit more about this new funding, but can Lindsay, could you give a little bit more um, details about services that the team provides to support women who have been victims of coercive control? Of course, yeah. So I, I, we've kind of discussed this. I mean, certainly the Scottish Women's Rights Centre provides outreach. So we've got helplines and our legal surgeries and that's a kind of first point of contact that women can access some initial legal advice and information before they then go on to instruct a solicitor or even just to let them know that they can instruct a solicitor because quite often um, women might not even realise that that's a situation maybe that's turning into a legal situation. So it's really, I think, quite useful to have a bit of background um, advice and also just a bit of you know, guidance in terms of signposting to where they should go. And we can link them in, for example, with um, the other um, support um Support that's available, um, Scottish Women's Aid, Rape Crisis Scotland, just depending on where they're going to, um, you know, where they need to access if they haven't already. Um, So that is our kind of um, first response, I suppose, in terms of of women accessing services. Um, But we also realise, and and unfortunately, and it's sad to say, that demand for our service far outstrips our capacity. Um, So we're aware that... um, the, the the unanswered calls to our service is is is, is high and it, and it is it's because our single service cannot provide this the all the support that every woman in Scotland who's experiencing gender-based violence needs um, and so that's again all about funding and resources but um, ultimately we recognize that and so that's why we put quite a lot of um, um, time and, and effort into our um, public legal education so ensuring that there there are resources there that women can access for example, who aren't going to call our helpline or can't access our service or just want a bit of guidance, you know, in terms of our our, our guides and things that we provide. Um, we have, uh, and as we've already discussed, we've got our economic abuse guide that goes into the details about exactly what economic abuse is, how you can perhaps evidence that. And at the moment, we're working on this economic abuse fact sheet that really um, goes into the heart of the interplay between the Domestic Abuse Scotland Act and economic abuse and perhaps how women can link that. So we're hoping that both of these resources will link up um, quite well to show women um, a, a, hopefully a path through where they can go. Um, and we have other guides that are available. So our domestic abuse um, reporting domestic abuse guide and our guide to stopping harassment. Both of these um, speak women through the process of reporting and also of trying to get and seek protective orders. So we're aware, and I've already mentioned this, that women are struggling to access legal aid um, and so they're, ac- they're struggling to access um, legal representation and quite often they're self-representing and that number is increasing significantly um, especially because of the cost of living crisis um, the, that, that is it's becoming it's compounding and it's becoming worse um, and so we know there's a need to have these resources available um, and to really focus on that and, and to work on women who are uh, help women who are self-representing and try to speak them through that we also, um, and speaking about technology, um, we also um, have our follow-up app 
um, which is a, a user kind of friendly app um, which victim survivors can log um, and record details of stalking um, in, um, so they can record photographs, they could record incident dates with you know timings, who was involved, what happened, they can record you know text message, all of these kind of things all in this um, safe app which is stored in their phone um, and isn't recognisable as that being that app. What I think is really useful about the app is that if you can imagine a woman is probably screenshotting loads. So all the text messages, for example, about contact, if there's been harassing or they've been stalking, they might be recording um, Facebook posts, things like that. Those are all ultimately just sitting in your 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 gallery in your phone, or they're sitting, you know, in a text message reel, um, and it's, they're just there. It's re-traumatizing. It's it's really difficult to to move past that when it's on. You know, you need to use your phone. You know, for speaking to your kids or speaking to your friends, and it's just all there. So this app allows women to put it into this app um, and like kind of store it away almost, but in a secure way and also in a way that they can then export that information um, and give it to the police or give it to their solicitors. Um, they can do that themselves or they can do that through the Scottish Women's Rights Centre. Um, and we have more information about the follow app on our website and how you can access that. And it just is a really good tool um, for women to access and, and to be able to record really in depth and remind them about what they need to record and what import is important to record. Um, so um, I think that it's a really, it's just a really useful app for women to access. Yeah, that's super cool. And I mean, as we're having this conversation as well about economic abuse and, and needing to save bank statements and needing to save all this stuff. And as well, like in my mind, I'm like, I want to save this in a secure place where if for some reason the perpetrator ends up getting my phone, they're not able to access what I'm saving, what I'm, what I, what I have, basically. Um, and I think that's so important. That's so, so important. And I'm so glad that that's actually a thing. Um, so one of the main calls to action from the 16 Days campaign to end violence against women is asking governments worldwide to invest in prevention to eradicate violence against women and girls. Um, either one of you, if you want to come in, what does this mean for us, JRS, Lindsay, and then Jen, what does this also mean in terms of like your research and the work that you're doing? Um, so we have been speaking about this quite a bit and in terms of that there needs to be investment in the eradication of violence against women and girls and and that's something that it, I mean it's in our international treaties so it's really clear that we as a state and 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 as a you know a country require to ensure that we are working towards the eradication of violence against women and girls and to really do that there has to be investment and funding and resources that are put into that to allow that to be realised and to see that happening. Um, certainly um, we've, we've talked about the need for investment in institutions that are um, that are dealing with um, gender-based violence and, and responding to it. So investment in support organisations and law centres and in, um, into the institutions like the police and things like that in terms of their administration of justice um, in, in relation to gender-based violence. That is all essential and it's something that has been well known and hasn't changed because of the cost of living crisis or a COVID-19 pandemic or anything like that. It's just something that needs to happen and it's essential and it's fundamental to ensuring that, that services can efficiently run and do what 
you know, actually make a difference to, to women. Um, but I think that something that is really important just now, and I, as a lawyer, it's very important um, to highlight is the legal aid crisis and the issue that we're having around um, women being able to access justice. So we hear on our helplines and our legal surgeries um, from women who are contacting anywhere between kind of 30 to 50 solicitors I've even heard of somebody contacting 100 solicitors and being told that none of them are taking on legal aid work um, and they can't take on their case um, and and that is something that we're hearing across the sector everybody who's working with women who have experienced um, gender-based violence is reporting that that women are really struggling to access um, legal aid um, and w- we are aware that solicitors aren't taking on legal aid because it is not a viable option. It's not a viable income stream just now for them. They too are experiencing the cost of living crisis. It's affecting their businesses. Um, and so it's not a viable income stream. And especially so in the cases that we're speaking of. So the, really there needs to be a full review of the legal aid system in terms of how that is um, administered at the moment. And that is something that I am aware solicitors are calling for. I'm aware that our... Um, our regulators are calling for and it's something that's really important but there also has to be some interim measures that are put in place a review of the legal aid system is going to be take a long time so there needs to be some interim increases and and and, and really thoughts about that in terms of how the most vulnerable in society can access justice and making sure that people aren't either having to self-represent which causes significant issues in terms of them being able to portray their case, making sure that they are accessing justice and making sure that things are um, fair in that process, um, or or are deciding that they're not going to deal with it and allowing the perpetrator to, let's say, win, you know, because they, they just, they can't, they can't, they can't afford it, they can't afford to be a solicitor and they perhaps just can't do it themselves they, or they don't have the energy at this point to do it themselves so it's really really important i think in terms of investing in the the legal aid system and investing in women's access to justice it's all fair and well to create new laws and create new um opportunities for women to access justice but if they can't actually do that by you know accessing a solicitor then it's it it it, it really minimises the impact that the new legislations and 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 um, protections for women can have. So I think it's really important that there's investment in legal aid. And I, I mean, along with that as well goes, you know, this legal aid and the need for legal aid doesn't occur in a vacuum. Like, what is it? If we're talking about prevention, fundamentally, we need to go back and find out why and what's happened for women that, you know, that that need legal aid. And it just goes back to, again, looking at the very structures in society that are currently and constantly, you know, reproducing gender inequality. But what are we actually doing about them? What, what are we doing about unpaid care work? What are we doing about the demands that are placed on women's, uh, on women's lives? And yeah, going back to those sources as well. So it's just, it's just one thing, right? Like, absolutely, we need to increase the, the access to justice. And we need to ask the questions as to why access to justice is necessary in the first place. But that's probably a whole nother, a whole nother podcast. So um, yeah, I mean, I mean, for me personally, I think the, the answer is probably obvious in terms of what I'd like to see from prevention and it is this increased awareness and economic abuse one of the thing that research is consistently showing us around economic abuse is that it is often the first form of abuse that's that's perpetrated 
alongside emotional and psychological abuse. So again, they're always very closely interwoven. It doesn't just happen in isolation. But there's real potential that if we as a society do come to understand, identify and want to respond to economic abuse, that we could actually stop further escalation of abuse and further forms of abuse. So I think there's something very serious there about prevention. Being able to identify that very, very early on, I think is key for for prevention. Maybe not, of course, entirely preventing violence against women. I don't know if, you know, don't want to sound down, but if we'll ever really get there, but certainly, you know, being able to minimize it as as much as possible and and save as many women's lives from this as, as we can. I think economics play a very, very powerful role in that. Thank you both to Lindsay and Jen for explaining what economic abuse is, explaining the complexities of the post-separation economic abuse wheel, highlighting the systemic barriers that victim survivors face, and also provide more information of the launch of resources throughout this campaign that will help support survivors of gender-based violence. Make sure to double check our show notes to links for more information about what was mentioned in this podcast, as well as following our social media to keep an eye on their campaign, as we will be releasing more resources leading up to Human Rights Day. And like always, listeners, don't forget to like, comment, and share this podcast. Don't forget that you can always listen back to our episodes on Podbean website, podcast streaming services, and social media pages. And we'll catch you next time.